This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Elf. We here at the Word of the Week Special Extension Office would like to issue an apology. Specifically, we would like to issue an apology to those who, upon hearing the end of last week's episode about reindeer, became panicked and, we have to say, a little bit overexcited about the possibility that something was wrong with Santa. In particular, we want to reassure any young listeners that Santa is indeed just fine and on schedule for his usual Christmas time rounds. You will be receiving the rewards you earned. If you remember, we signed off last week's show by pointing out that Clement Clark Moore's poem, The Night Before Christmas, as good as it is, and as helpful as it is, in understanding the true nature of the modern Christmas tradition, contains one supposed fact about Christmas, and Santa in particular, that we just can't believe is true. It wasn't Santa himself we had issue with. It was Moore's assertion that Santa was a right jolly old elf, whom Moore couldn't help but laugh at in spite of himself. Because if you know anything about elves, anything at all really, you know that no elf can be considered jolly nor stand being laughed at. And so we concluded that Moore couldn't be right about this one particular thing. Perhaps we should explain more thoroughly. Before we begin, though, if you live in a house which currently has an elf occupying a shelf somewhere within it, we must kindly request for your own safety that you nail it in place and keep a careful eye on it. Use a big, heavy iron nail. They are not to be trusted. We are, as gamers, perhaps most familiar with the Elves of Dungeons and Dragons, as designed by Gary Gygax. It was clear from the beginning where Gygax got the inspiration for the game's elves, even though he spent years denying that the influence was there. D&D elves were clearly modeled on the elves found in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, even though Gary's protestations became more emphatic after the whole threatened lawsuit over the Hobbit halfling thing, which we have spoken about previously. It wasn't until many years later, in 2000, that Gygax finally admitted in an interview that Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and associated works really had a huge influence on the game and its elements. Tolkien's elves were long-lived but dissipating in the latter years of their existence. They were fading away into the west from whence they had come. They were aloof and unconcerned with the world of men, believing that everything, like themselves, was in a final decline and there was little that could, or even should, be done about it. Tolkien's elves lived in the last bastions of the wild world that was, hidden among forests and river valleys and preferred to have little or no contact with the outside world. While they might laugh and sing, there was little to suggest that true happiness lay underneath it all. The elves of Tolkien are a sad and fading race, and they blame short-lived and short-sighted man for the failing of the world they once knew. 
They hold grudges and are reluctant to cooperate with the other races in attempting to save what remains of their world. There is a bitterness and anger under the surface that hints at a much different elven origin. They were the children of the creators and meant to be something more than what we finally see presented in the books. Much of this is touched on in the supplementary books to The Lord of the Rings, especially The Silmarillion, which tells of the beginning of Tolkien's world and the ages leading up to the Age of Man. But for our purposes, we have to look even further afield to see the real source. Germanic Traditions Before we do that, though, we have to acknowledge an obvious and plain difference between the elves in fantasy literature as represented by Tolkien and Gygax and those more familiar to Christmas enthusiasts as the elves of Santa's workforce. They toil away year-round at Santa's workshop at the North Pole, making the toys and filling the sacks that will be loaded upon Santa's sleigh and distributed to all the good boys and girls on Christmas Eve. Good boys and girls just like you. You did nail that shelf-sitting elf down, like we told you, right? These Christmas elves are universally cheerful and enthusiastic, even in spite of some of them wanting to be dentists or to modernize Santa's operations. They dress in red and green, wear shoes with the toes pointed up in big curls that suggest podiatry is unheard of in the northern realms, and frequently have big floppy hats in defiance of OSHA guidelines, sometimes with a bell on the end. They are short, with heads that are somewhat larger in proportion to their bodies than they otherwise should be, and have a fondness for Christmas confections. And they are so freakishly different from their Tolkienian cousins that you're forced to wonder what sort of tradition they came from, and who was off their meds the day these little freaks were invented. Louisa May Alcott was a 19th century writer known for the novels Little Women, Little Men, and Joe's Boys, semi-autobiographical novels about her life growing up in Concord, Massachusetts. Her family was never particularly well-to-do, but she did grow up and associate with such literary luminaries as Ralph Waldo Emerson, Thoreau, Hawthorne, and Longfellow. She fought against slavery and for feminism throughout the course of her life and was well regarded as a poet and writer even before the Little Women series. In the 1860s, she wrote under the pen name A.M. Bernard. As Bernard, she wrote a number of novels that were adventurous and passionate stories of suspense, including a manuscript for a novel deemed too sensational by her then-publisher James R. Eliot, who had wanted to serialize another Bernard novel in his magazine. Written two years before Little Women, it wouldn't be until 1995 that Random House would finally publish A Long Fatal Love Chase after a collector of Alcott's works restored the manuscript and made it available to them for a $1.5 million advance. Profits from the novel's publication were split between the collector, the Alcott Family Museum, the heirs of Louisa May, and the primary school where the collector was employed. In 1850, Alcott wrote a book entitled Christmas Elves. It was never published, but contains one of the first and earliest mentions of elves associated with Christmas to appear in literature. Throughout the rest of the 1800s, references to Christmas, Santa, and elves continued to depict the close relationship between the three, 
A popular women's magazine of the time, Godey's Ladies Book, printed a front cover illustration in 1873 that depicted elves and toys surrounding Santa. They proclaimed that it showed the sort of preparations made at Christmas time to get toys to children. Godey's would continue to influence the popular depiction of Christmas throughout much of the rest of the 19th century, a depiction which included the more whimsical variety of Christmas elf and even what a Christmas tree was supposed to look like and how it was supposed to be decorated. The thing is, even Alcott was working with earlier materials. European settlers brought with them ideas about a variety of so-called helpers from their local traditions of Santa-like characters and other Christmas practices. These included characters like the now infamous Black Peter who listens at chimneys and informs Santa of the behavior of the children within. Necht Ruprecht from Germany who accompanies Santa around town and threatens to beat misbehaving children with a switch. And the Tomtanissa and allied characters from Scandinavian folklore who are short, look vaguely like traditional garden gnomes, and hang around houses and farmyards protecting the place. So similar are they that it is fairly likely their conception of Santa's elves comes from stories and depictions of the Nyssa brought over from Nordic settlers to America. And as you can see, not all of Santa's helpers were necessarily pleasant, if not outright evil. Many were set up to encourage good behavior and proper respect during feasts and festivals at the end of the year. In the case of the Nyssa in particular, they were seen as ancestor spirits, that is, the spirits of former occupants of the ground a home or farm had been built on, or former members of the family. They were often attached to a given family and would follow them from location to location. And the thing about ancestor spirits is, they almost always demand respect from living members of the family or those now occupying their former property. Which is fine if you are only ever respectful and kind to them. They'll mind the animals and keep them safe. They take a protective attitude towards members of the family and make sure nothing bad happens to them. They'll prevent curses and evil spirits and guard against things metaphysical. They'll even, if treated especially well, turn their hands towards various jobs and tasks that need tending to. They might even mend the odd pair of shoes if you're lucky. But treat them badly, fail to follow tradition, or even disrespect them, say, by laughing at them, and you and your family are in for a world of hurt. The Tomptonissa were not above the occasional prank for lesser offenses. They might let a horse or two off their leads, or leave a gate open and let all the cows out. But they might also strike folks from behind, or cause the crockery to fall off the shelf and shatter. Particularly bad offenses from unrepentant farmers might lead to the death of livestock, the failing of crops, and the general ill health and deaths of the farm's occupants. Nyssa were not to be taken lightly, and were often so easily offended by improper behavior that it was necessary to make certain daily offerings to them in order to appease them for any offenses that might have been inadvertently made throughout the day. One popular form of appeasement, at least popular with Anissa, was to leave out a bowl of porridge for them with a pat of butter on top. Failure to include the butter was often a serious offense in itself, and at least one Nyssa was so incensed at not finding butter atop his porridge that he immediately went out and killed the family's best horse. He became so hungry after doing so that he went back into the farmhouse and ate the porridge anyway, 
only to discover that the farmer, who had had to prepare the bowl himself because his wife was away, had mistakenly placed a pat of butter at the bottom of the bowl. Denissa then spent the rest of the night scouring the countryside for an identical horse to replace the one he had killed. This idea of appeasement is part and parcel of the traditional milk and cookies offering for Santa and his helpers. Oh, and as an interesting side note, the bite of a Tom Denissa was said to be poisonous. If bitten, nothing on earth could cure the victim, and help from beyond the mortal world was needed. More often than not, the victim simply wasted away and died before any help could be found. So basically, the traditional Christmas elf is based on a spiteful, dangerous creature held in check only by the observance of tradition and the offering of appeasements to make up for any perceived slights real or imagined upon pain of torment, or worse, death by poisoned bite. And here we note our previous episode yet again, in which we conservatively calculated Santa's reindeer herd to be in the range of over a thousand animals. This no doubt qualifies it as a farm, needing all the help it can get. We might also cast a suspicious eye at the tradition of offering cookies and milk. To what purpose would one person put a single Christmas night's worth of such things from around the world, which must easily amount to millions of gallons of milk and several thousand hundredweight of various confections? Certainly not for personal consumption, but perhaps as a stockpile from which to draw future offerings to placate the rabid little creatures which hold him virtually in thrall. But perhaps, after all, Santa's elves really are the other kind. How do we know that Tolkien, and therefore the rest of the Western fantasy tradition to come since him, had the Germanic traditional elves in mind when he wrote? Well, Tolkien read and studied extensively, both as a boy at school and in his later career as an academic and philologist, from numerous older traditional works. A philologist, by the way, is one who, among other things, makes a study of human speech as used to relate literature and convey oral histories and mythology. As a result, Tolkien was particularly fond of two North Germanic or Nordic works, the Prose Edda and the Poetic Edda. The Prose and Poetic Eddas were themselves based on older works. In the case of the Poetic Edda, the title is just a modern name for what was once a collection of anonymous poems and heroic stories collected in medieval Icelandic times and called Codex Regius, the Book of the King. From the Codex, and therefore from the Poetic Edda, comes most of the modern knowledge about Norse mythology and ancient Germanic heroes. But both documents, the Poetic Edda and Codex Regius, bear a convoluted relationship to each other. When the Poetic Edda was first discovered, it was thought to have been based on a much older series of documents, perhaps an even older Edda that was the origin source for both the Prose and Poetic Edda. When the Codex Regius was discovered in 1643, it was thought to be the book in question. Dating from somewhere around 1270, it was the only known source for the poems discussed in both the Prose and Poetic Eddas. Modern scholarship, though, has placed the Codex and the Poetic Edda on the same historical footing, and now suggests these two documents were contemporaries, and that a third source, as yet undiscovered, is the common source for all three known documents. The Prose Edda, on the other hand, is a more scholarly work, perhaps intended to be used as a guide by future poets and storytellers in understanding the language and imagery used in earlier works. It also established the foundation 
for the basics of Norse mythology as we understand them today. Attributed to, or at least collected by, Snorri Sturluson in the early 13th century, it is primarily from this collection of documents that Tolkien would have drawn his inspiration for the elves of Middle-earth, and one or two of their less well-regarded cousins. Again, things get complicated here, but we'll do our best to make it as clear as possible. In Chapter 17 of Gilfaginning, one of the major divisions of the Prose Edda, the Edda makes reference to two similar but separate beings, the Dakofar and the Yolsafar. The Yolsafar are described as bright, luminous beings that live in a place called Alfheimer, approximately akin to an elfish heaven. Meanwhile, the Dakofar live below the earth in dust and dirt and deep within the dark realms. They are the Dark Elves and are in every way a contrast to the Yolsafar. So different are the two groups that scholars wonder if the Dakofar are not elves at all, but rather dwarves. Which makes a certain amount of sense given the dwarven association with matters of the earth and elven association with light and life. But if there is one thing scholars like, it's a good disagreement about how or why something started. So the debate goes on. The thing is, though, that's virtually all that was ever said about elves or elf-like beings in the two oldest sources available that mention them. From those few references, Tolkien pulled in other sources and built up the mythology of Middle-earth and gave the elves a fictional history that empowered them as the true but fading offspring of the Creator. And so elaborate is Tolkien's invented mythology that he goes on to further subdivide the elves into numerous smaller groups, each defined by their own connection to the Creator and his creation. And then he adds in dwarves, too. And from then to now, the majority of fantasy worlds which have non-human cultures tend to use very similar elves, dwarves, orcs, goblins, and so on. Frankly, we're troubled, though. Clearly, we can safely surmise that Santa is no elf. Equally clearly, Tolkien-esque elves aren't the progenitors of the Christmas elf that helped Santa in his workshop. For one thing, they come on the scene way too late. By the time everyone gets familiar with Middle-earth elves, the Christmas kind have been on the scene for at least a hundred years. At best, they are related only by the thinnest of strands. And equally, equally clearly, the source of the Alcatian elves isn't quite right either. They're vicious and spiteful and downright dangerous even at the best of times. Though they do bear stronger similarities, something is still wrong. What's going on here? Where did these helpful little devils come from? Thomas Bowdler was born in 1754 near Bath in Somerset, England. He studied medicine at St. Andrews in Edinburgh and received his degree in 1776. In 1781, he contracted a fever in Lisbon while attending to a dying friend and returned to England in poor health and resolved to never practice medicine again. He was a fellow of the Royal Society, played such a good game of chess that the Bowdler attack is named after him, and in 1807 released the first edition of The Family Shakespeare. You'd be forgiven at this point for saying, so what? Probably you have some similarly titled book sitting around you or your parents' house. It'll be a big book with all of Shakespeare's most famous plays in it. But this version of Shakespeare's works will be a little different. You see, The Family Shakespeare wasn't meant to be the definitive volume of all of the best of Shakespeare's plays. No, sir. 
What this book was meant to be was safe. When he was younger, Bodler's father used to read from Shakespeare during the evenings. It wasn't until later in his life that Bowdler thought to read it for himself. Upon doing so, he discovered his father had been leaving out bits and pieces and outright altering other passages so as to present what he felt was a suitable version of Shakespeare for his wife and children. So Bowdler hit upon the idea of printing a safe version of Shakespeare suitable for a man to read to his family even if the man wasn't astute or skilled enough to alter things on the fly himself. The first edition contained 20 selected plays and was, surprisingly, something of a hit. A second edition, published in 1818, contained all 36 available plays. By 1850, 11 editions had been published, each one containing notes on changes and the reasons for same before each play. Bowdler's work met with two reactions. On the one hand, Shakespeare purists detested it as it altered the meaning and removed substance from the great works. Meanwhile, others loved it because it then meant Shakespeare could be taught to a wider audience that included women and children. Although, according to Bowdler's nephew, it was actually Bowdler's sister Harriet who had made all the changes. But since women of the time were considered incapable of actually understanding the verses she would have been editing, let alone allowed to edit such verses, Thomas Bowdler took the credit. In any case, Bowdler's efforts, be it Thomas or Harriet, became so well known that a new word was added to the English language. Eleven years after his death, Bowdlerize, meaning to expurgate something such as a book, by omitting or modifying parts considered vulgar, became a real word. An expurgate just means to cleanse of something morally harmful, offensive, or erroneous. Which is what we think happened to the elves, now known as Christmas elves. They started out as the other kind. Heck, a whole mishmash of nasty, fantastical beasties and humanoids were once classified as elves. Elf was a catch-all term for goblins, fairies, redcaps, gnomes, dwarves, leprechauns, and more. Anything vaguely otherworldly came under the heading of elf. Elves were engaged in all sorts of unpleasant behaviors, from minor pranks to killing livestock. They were said to steal babies and leave changelings in their place to be raised by the unsuspecting parents. If you had a bad dream, it was because an elf sat upon your chest while you slept and gave it to you in a case of elf pressure. If you became suddenly lame or stumbled and fell or you had a sudden pain, you might have been elf shot. People born with physical or mental challenges were said to be elf touched. Crops that failed did so because you had offended the local population of elves. Elves were clearly dangerous and not to be trusted. They watched and waited for any opportunity to harm, corrupt, or otherwise work mischief upon those around them. Make sure you use a real iron nail. Elves can't stand iron. But then someone decided it was all too much. All those fairy tales about the dangerous elves and what they could do to children who misbehaved. The Black Peters who listened to chimneys and ratted you out to Santa. The twelve lads who stole and hurt and cursed people leading up to Christmas. Necked Ruprecht and his beatings and the Tomptonessa with their insistence on proper respect or else. They're not good for children. 
They'll be scared and frightened, and possibly even scarred for life if they have to live in a world where things like that might happen if they misbehave or don't take care of the animals or skip school or leave their rooms a mess. It's far too frightening, too much for their fragile psyches, so it's better we should scrub those things from our stories. Make the stories nicer and more gentle. Instead, let's make the elves friendly and kind and have the men choose while singing and be helpful to Santa and make presents for everyone to enjoy and leave all kinds of goodies and fun behind until they are entirely unrecognizable for what they are. Let's hide all the nasty by never, ever talking about it again so that we can forget just exactly how bad elves really are. We think, as we often think around here, that Sir Terry Pratchett said it best. Elves are wonderful, he said. They provoke wonder. Elves are marvelous. They cause marvels. Elves are fantastic. They create fantasies. Elves are glamorous. They project glamour. Elves are enchanting. They weave enchantment. Elves are terrific. They beget terror. The thing about words is that meanings can twist just like a snake. And if you want to find snakes, look for them behind words that have changed their meaning. No one ever said elves are nice. Elves are bad. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash GM Word of the Week. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.